the depression changed me as a person. That's the way I kind of always describe it to people. If I took someone that doesn't speak our language, they let's say they weren't even from this planet, right? And I plopped them here. And all of a sudden, I could give them anxiety or a panic attack, rather. They would know something's wrong with them. They might not know what it's called. They might not know there's a name for this. They instantly know something is wrong with them and something has changed. With depression, and I'm not saying everyone feels it this way, but this is how I experienced it. And maybe it was because I was dealing with panic attacks. I had bigger problems at the moment. But depression seems to just take away 1% every little day. And it does this 1% thing, 1% thing, 1% thing until three months goes by, four months goes by. And that's a lot of percentages to take. And you start to realize oh, I'm not the same person that I once was, but I'm stuck now. Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com. But for now, here is today's episode. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. My name is Evan Transu, aka Detective Ev, and I will be your host for today's show. If you're watching this on video, that is probably inherently obvious because I'm the only one on the screen right now, <laughs> and I'm doing kind of a solo thing today. What we're going to be doing is talking about mental health, and we're also going to be talking about the recent discoveries with SSRIs and how they might not have been as great as we once expected. Particularly, we're going to talk about my story and my journey with mental health and how I eventually came to the functional side and how this was truly and literally a life-saving thing for me that I am so blessed to have discovered. I did do a solo episode on here probably over, definitely over a year ago now, it might be in the 40s, and I talked about other things that I dealt with along with like GI issues, cystic acne, Meniere's disease, and if you want to hear all of those things, a more laid back version probably, go check out that. And this is laid back, it's off the cuff, but it's more formal in the sense of we have the video, we're 160 something episodes in, and we're just going to be exclusively talking about the mental health side today. Now, I'm not going to read off my bio. You guys probably know who I am from listening to the podcast, but uh, if not, you'll find out today. That's for sure. So how the mental health journey starts for me. And by the way, when I'm mentioning all this stuff, just know that there was a bunch of physical health issues going on as well that did get progressively worse too, but we're not discussing those today. Around five years old, I started dealing with panic attacks. Now, we did not know that it was called a panic attack at the time. I don't think anyone in my immediate family even knew what a panic attack was. And just to give the time reference, I know I'm fairly young, I'm 26, but this was still then 21 years ago. And if you are listening to this, I'm assuming you're over the, I mean, you got to be over the age of 20, I would guess, and probably even over the age of 30. So if you're listening to this, I want you to think back 21 years ago, or even 10 years ago. And think about how differently the world viewed mental health. It wasn't as talked about. There was certainly more of a stigma around it. And I'm not saying that everyone's talking about it today or there's not no stigma. There certainly is a stigma still to this day. That's part of the work that I do outside of FDN, actually. But at the time, it was different. It was really, really different. I think it was so different that doctors didn't even know necessarily what to look for. I'm not saying they wouldn't have understood the symptoms, but there wasn't an expectation that someone's coming in my office all the time with this. Certainly, there wasn't an expectation that a five-year-old guy, because it's statistically less common for males to deal with panic disorder, to be coming in at five years old and dealing with panic attacks. I should also specify, I suppose, I wasn't dealing with panic disorder at that time, but the panic attacks did start. And my parents brought me to the doctor because things were getting interesting. It wasn't happening all the time. In fact, it probably only happened a few times a month on average, maybe even two times a month on average. But the point was, if you've ever seen a panic attack 
And if you've never had one or never seen one, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. It is incredibly real to the person experiencing it. And because they believe it's so real, it makes the other people think that something serious is happening. And now I'm not saying real in the sense of implying that there's some kind of delusion here. There isn't. The physical symptoms that come with a panic attack are very, very real. You will feel them. But you're not dying. And that's what a panic attack will make you think. It will make you think that you're dying. It will make you think that if you do not do something right away, this is it for you, game over. And that's not the case. You're not going to die. I I guess you could have a heart attack probably from being that freaked out and that worked up. But certainly at five years old, you don't really have anything to worry about. And yet every single time you deal with one of these things, you will be convinced that this is the last one. This is the one that's going to kill me. I'm dying here right now. And of course, any good parent, and so I had great parents, they took me to the doctor to get this checked out. And what this doctor said to me was actually something that stuck with me for the rest of my life. And it admittedly was a big mistake on his end. Now, I know in the world of functional, we're always talking about Western versus functional. This is this has nothing to do with that. I'm not suggesting that he messed up because he was in Western medicine. I think anyone could have messed this up. But it was just a, it's just a different time. It was just a different time when people looked at these things differently. What he said to my parents and myself is that this isn't something to worry about. Evan just gets himself a little too worked up and he will outgrow this. Now, I was a fairly smart kid. I always make a joke that all the juice went from like one side of my brain, which was the athletics, to the academics. (laughs) Um, I scored very well in school tests or standardized tests rather when I was young. I was recommended for the gifted program. I am not the smartest person in the world by any means, but it was certainly something I had that was an advantage. But with my mental health issues, it was actually a huge disadvantage because I had the intellectual capacity to understand and grasp a lot of the things that I was dealing with. But just because you have that level of ability does not mean that you have the emotional ability that would also match that. And so I'm thinking maybe more like an adult, just in terms of being able to grasp certain concepts, but emotionally, I'm a five-year-old. And so I kept having these things back and forth where I I felt like I was going to die with this panic attack. And so I would contemplate what is death, like what actually happens. And I realized that the adults in my life couldn't answer this for me. Of course, some preached certain religions, and I'm not condemning anyone that is religious. But if you talk to enough people and you're coming at it from an unbiased perspective, which as a five-year-old I was, (laughs) you're going to get a lot of different answers. And you start to quickly realize, okay, wait a second. You guys are are the adults. You're the ones that are supposed to be taking care of me. You're the ones that are supposed to have the answers when I ask a question. And yet, I don't think that you guys know any of this stuff either. This is pretty important. And that alone created a very weird mental health type of dilemma for me that was probably not the same as the other mental health stuff I dealt with. It was a very legitimate existential crisis where I kind of became... I don't want to use the word obsessed, but um, inappropriately fascinated with this concept of what happens when I die, what happens when my family members die, where did I come from for that matter? Hey, since no one knows about this, this is something I should really avoid. Oh, crap. When I had these panic attacks, I feel like I'm going to die. So now it is this very, very, very scary experience. But again, this doctor said this isn't something to worry about. Evan's just going to outgrow it. Well, the years go by, and I would have times where I didn't deal with panic attacks at all. I was always a very anxious kid, but for the next several years, I mean, things were all right. I was doing well in school socially, actually, for a little bit, which looking back is beyond shocking. But (laughs) in, uh, in third grade, we had this thing where there was a new elementary school built where I lived. So I am kind of from a suburban, slightly rural area that's become mostly suburban now. But they built a new school at the time. And so there was 100 kids that were transferred from that original school to the new school based on where they lived, kindergarten through sixth grade. And amongst those kids, you know, there's only maybe like, I guess that averages out to like 10 or 12 per grade that were actually transferred to this new school. So you were lucky if you knew anyone. And I kind of I kind of knew a few people, but this new school was big. And so I didn't have any friends in my new class when I got there. And ironically, this is where I met someone who's still my best friend to this day. His name's Jake. He was assigned to be my friend in that third grade class. And we literally just saw each other uh, two or three weeks ago. He came up and visited my girlfriend and I when we were in Vermont. So pretty cool how that worked out because that's almost, it's about 18 years of friendship at this point, maybe 19. 
But the point is, once I switched over to that school, despite getting assigned someone who ended up being uh, one of my best friends in this life, it, it changed me socially. I became a lot more awkward. I became a lot more shy. I went from being a pretty popular kid to, you know, kind of middle of the ground type of thing. I could kick it with everyone, but I didn't really belong anywhere. And over this time, the mental health issues got worse. So I don't believe the transfer was causal, but the transfer, it, it couldn't have been. I had this stuff before that. But it certainly acted as something that exacerbated this already existing problem or set of problems. Fifth, uh, fourth grade goes by, fifth grade goes by, sixth grade goes by. I'm maintaining pretty well in all of these. There is certainly an underlying anxiety, occasional panic attacks, but I can make it through the day. And then we switch to middle school. Seventh grade, kind of the same thing. Everything's all right. Eighth grade, same thing. And I don't want to fast forward just through all of these. I mean, basically, I was just known as an anxious guy, a paranoid guy, but I was I was okay. I was stable. But then ninth grade came around. And towards the end of the ninth grade school year, so still early in the actual calendar year, but later in the school year, I had a panic attack at my friend's house while I was in the basement with all of our other friends. We were waiting to actually get picked up because we were only 14 and 15 at the time. No one was driving. And while I'm waiting to get picked up, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I felt one of these things about to come on, the panic attack. Now, at this time, remember, I still don't have a full understanding of what this even is. I've never actually yet received a formal diagnosis of panic attacks, and I don't really get them as often. I'm a very anxious person, but I don't get it like that. And this came out of nowhere, and it was bad because now I'm you know, more of an, an adult type figure, a young adult figure dealing with these things. I just remember sprinting up the stairs to his parents that were on the first floor. I'm screaming, I can't breathe. And of course you can breathe if you're screaming, but you're not really thinking that logically when you're dealing with something like this. I'm freaking out. So the mom being scared, <laughs> she immediately takes me and the friend whose uh, parents were at that house, whose house it was, I guess I should say. And we leave to go to the hospital. Now the stepdad stuck there with four other guys waiting for them to get picked up. And so we fly over to the hospital and what happened is, although I didn't acknowledge it at this time or that time, I started to calm down in the car. Now that did not happen at first. What was really weird, I didn't get this as dramatically as people describe this sometimes and I never got it again and I never got it before that. I hope I don't get it again. But I had that um, life flashing thing. It was very weird. There was... um. It was fast forwarded chronological imagery of my life. And it wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It just was. And it wasn't something that I left my body to go experience, which is, again, how I usually hear it described from other people. It wasn't that profound. It was, I'm still in the car. I'm still here. But this is happening as I'm accepting that I'm about to die because that's what I believed what was happening. Well, that car, uh, car ride to the hospital is not particularly long from their house, maybe eight, nine minutes tops. And maybe around minute five, six, seven, because panic attacks are very short-lived overall. Typically, they're not more than 20 minutes. They can be as little as a few minutes. I start calming down, and I'm still scared. But I also begin to realize that this was probably one of those things I dealt with before. Again, not having a name for it per se, but knowing that, uh, yeah, I, I've, um, I've been here before, haven't I? I don't want to say this, though. It's one thing to do it in front of my family members, especially like my mom or dad, but it's a whole nother thing to be doing this in front of my uh, friends, my group of guy friends who, if you're a guy or you were a part of any guy friend group as a girl, maybe when you were younger, we're pretty rough on each other. I mean, half of our conversation just consisted of literally picking apart each other's worst insecurities. It's kind of how you grow some thick skin as a male. And I don't actually think it's the worst thing in the world, but because of this, the last thing I wanted to do is say, hey, I have this thing that makes me think I'm going to die. And then it goes away, kind of. Yeah, sorry about that. I was confused about it. I didn't understand how someone else would get it. Nonetheless, uh, my parents come, they pick me up. And when I was at the hospital, my vital signs were good. Everything was fine, of course, because there's not literally anything happening when you have a panic attack. Not, I mean, your blood pressure might go up, your heart rate's going to be elevated, but everything looked overall fine once we got there. And so we just kind of wrote it off to a freak accident. I go home uh, super exhausted that night. I don't think I went to school the next day. But for whatever reason, out of all the panic attacks I had dealt with in my life up to then, and there were some bad ones. There was ones that happened in school. There was ones that happened when my grandparents were watching me. 
there was some really disturbing events with those. But this one triggered what would kind of be in a very long sense, because it took a while, drawn out sense. It would kind of be the beginning of the end for me. And here's what I mean. So that panic attack was terrible. It was scary. But it started what became legitimate panic disorder. And panic disorder is classified by a few things. If you really care, you can go look it up. Uh, But a couple of the things that it's classified as is one, you're obviously having frequent enough panic attacks. And number two, you start to develop a fear of the panic attack itself. So now there's this anticipatory fear that you're constantly living with, waiting for the next attack. The next attack inevitably happens. You're pretty exhausted and pretty stressed out most of the time. And that day in my friend's basement triggered what would be legitimately, no exaggeration, didn't miss one day in this time frame. It was about three to four months of daily panic attacks, sometimes multiple times a day. And I always, you know, I feel weird saying this because there's people that have gone through a lot of crazy stuff. And I'm also not someone who believes that you expressing your pain of something is lessening anyone else's or that you have to go through the worst thing in the world to know what true pain is. It's just, it is weird to say that life kind of felt like a living hell. That's how I would say it when I know other people are dealing with way worse things. But my experience, my truth at that time was life was a living hell. I had a middle-class, upper-middle-class family. I had a great home in many senses. Some of that stuff doesn't matter when you're dealing with these types of things. Now, I'm sure I'd rather be dealing with these things in my comfy bedroom than the projects, but nonetheless, it was it was not good. We did go to a doctor again at that point, and the doctor diagnosed it as panic attacks and panic disorder. And this was a huge, almost like annoying aha moment for my parents and I, because we started thinking, well, wait a second, we came in here 10 years ago. And talk to you guys about this for the exact same symptoms. And there was no diagnosis at the time. The immediate recommendation was Xanax, which is alprazolam. It's a benzodiazepine, something that I would assume most people are familiar with, especially if you're listening to a podcast like this. And to be fair, this was a good recommendation. I'm not condemning this at all. Now, a 15-year-old getting it, it's not my first option. But these, if you're going to use that, in the way that it's supposed to be prescribed to people. This is one of those situations. Daily panic attacks, the person cannot live a normal life because of it, and we need to calm that down. No, I think that was the right call. But at the same time, my parents also made a correct call by not allowing me to get on that. And I don't mean it was some disciplinary type of thing. They just thought this wasn't a good idea for a 15-year-old to be taking it this young. Both adults or both um, groups were correct. The doctor was correct to recommend that. My parents were very correct to know me well enough to not recommend it because I would end up abusing this stuff anyway when I started getting it illegally. Go figure. So who knows what would have happened if I had a legitimate prescription to this, especially at 15 years old. Well, we kind of stepped out of that. No therapy or psychiatrist was ever recommended that I remember. Um, I'm almost positive one wasn't recommended. And the other issue was I had formed a belief system in my head over the last 10 years. Because remember, what was I told? You're going to outgrow this. There's nothing wrong with you. Now, before this day, when I went into a doctor and actually got a diagnosis, there has been 10 years, which at that point is two thirds of my life, where I'm saying to myself and realizing I'm not getting better. I'm getting worse. And if the doctor couldn't figure this out, maybe there's something really wrong with Evan Transit. Because we look up to doctors, right? We put them on a pedestal as these authority figures. They are very smart. They're very educated. They make great money. There's And these are all true things, right? They should be looked up to in many senses. But they're not gods or goddesses. <laughs> I looked at that as the ultimate ruling. A doctor couldn't be wrong. I'm five years old, right? And so I lived with this belief that there's something inherently wrong with Evan Transu. I'm crazy. I can't talk to people about the things that I deal with. And so those panic attacks forced me into the doctor and the hospital uh, quite a few times during those several months. But I had a refusal to get help in a way. I didn't want to talk to people about this. Because in my head, even though this doctor is diagnosing this now, I was still equating this with the word crazy. With the words, you know, I'm not going to say it on this podcast because if we keep it clean, it allows us to uh, get into more people's ears because otherwise like Apple and YouTube will block it, I believe. Uh, But effed up, right? That's how I felt. 
I'm just an effed up person. I'm a crazy person. I can't talk to people about this stuff. And so, yeah, we went to the doctor, but then we didn't go to the doctor. My parents wanted me to see a counselor, but I threatened to hurt myself or run away if I had to see a counselor. My parents are great people. They're not mental health professionals. <laughs> so it became a really kind of awkward thing um, at my house and in my life. The panic attacks continue for three to four months. I ended up at the hospital a few times, like I said, because of that. And then summer came around. And this is always a confusing part because it's like, well, was school causing the panic attacks? I don't believe so. But what I do believe is that not having school anymore really helped chill things out. I wasn't forced to go participate with other people at any time I didn't want to. I was a younger person, so I slept in until probably 11 a.m., 12 p.m. at that time. Panic attacks made me stay up really late, and I kind of just passed out from the exhaustion eventually. So not having to force myself to wake up three or four hours later to go to school, which no one wants to do anyway. I don't think the panic attacks were being caused by school by any means. I had these long before I was in school, but I, I don't think it was helping. And so the summer comes around and those first few days of summer are, from what I remember, the first few days where it really started just relaxing a little bit. Okay, we're calming down. This isn't as bad as it once was. I was certainly anxious, but not like freaking out at that level. But I don't feel good. And at some point over those three and a half, four months, I now know what was the beginning of major depressive disorder had began to develop, begun to develop. I didn't get diagnosed then because I didn't go back to a doctor until I was 18 years old, unfortunately. The depression changed me as a person. That's the way I kind of always describe it to people. If I took someone that doesn't speak our language, they, let's say they weren't even from this planet, right? And I plopped them here and all of a sudden I could give them anxiety or a panic attack rather. They would know something's wrong with them. They might not know what it's called. They might not know there's a name for this. They instantly know something is wrong with them and something has changed. With depression, and I'm not saying everyone feels it this way, but this is how I experienced it. And maybe it was because I was dealing with panic attacks. I had bigger problems at the moment. But depression seems to just take away 1% every little day. And it does this 1% thing, 1% thing, 1% thing until three months goes by, four months goes by. and that's a lot of percentages to take. And you start to realize, oh, I'm not the same person that I once was, but I'm stuck now. Again, I definitely didn't know what depression was. That was something totally foreign to me and totally new. I knew this wasn't anxiety, but these symptoms, um, they were different. At this point, you know, I'm almost 16 years old. I'll be 16 years old in September of that year. We got out of uh, school in about June. I'm at a position in my life and a time in my life where all my friends are experimenting, right? Everyone has smoked a cigarette. Everyone's drank alcohol. Everyone's smoked weed. At that time, I have done none of those things. Some are obviously doing it more heavy than others. Some are just, you know, once a month. Some are almost getting to about every day, but not quite. And they weren't using it for the same reasons. Well, I was very resistant to drugs. I was actually a pretty straight edge kid. But when depression kicked in for the first time ever, it's not like my friends were pressuring me into this. I had <laughs> our friend group was terrible influences on each other, but we had respect for each other. We liked each other. And I don't remember anyone saying to me like, oh, come on, do this. Or you're not cool. We're not hanging out with you. I don't recall anyone saying that ever. But certainly there's just a natural pressure from it being around. Uh, but I would say mostly that was my decision. And something changed in me where I went from the straight edge kid who used to tell these people that I wouldn't be friends with them anymore for doing these things. That is now the one saying, Hey, well, you know, what? I'll, I'll smoke weed. That was for the first time. And I understand weed is not the worst thing in the world. I do not re recommend it at all to any developing brain. I think that's a terrible idea. I think you should have the right to do it as an adult, but I think it's a terrible idea for any developing brain, knowing what I know now. And I started with that. And the first time didn't really feel much. Um, second or third time, I think about the same thing. Fourth time, wow. Okay, that's something. I'm feeling something now. And it was like a mix of nervousness, but also like fun. I was with a ton of great friends. Everyone else was in good spirits. So it was it was all good then. Fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. I can't even remember how many times after that I would get panic attacks when I smoked. And this is the the hardest one for me to try to comprehend. I'm not a 
psychologist, but I wonder, was there a control thing here? Like, why would I do this when I started to recognize that this would trigger panic attacks almost every single time I did it? Was this my way of getting back in control? Okay, sure, I'll do this and it will give me a panic attack, but I get to decide when this happens because before I have it anyway, and it's at any time of the day, it could be in the morning, it could be in the middle of the day, it could be at night, it could be at all three. This gave me a little more control, I guess. I have no other way of explaining that other than that's maybe why I kept using it because it actually was not a fun experience at all for those first several times. I got whacked out, man. I didn't, <laughs> that, that stuff was wacky to me. <laughs> well, I kept going and pretty quickly I became one of the people with the biggest problem in the friend group. I eventually was the one that needs to smoke weed every single day. I'm doing this all the time, like literally in the morning, midday, nighttime, before bed. And what really was tricky is the first two months, it worked. I was getting better sleep. I felt really good. My grades, I think, slightly picked up during that time. I was a little happier. My parents even said something at the time. They didn't know what was going on, obviously. But they commented that things seemed better. And so I'm thinking, wow, okay. You know, I, I and remember, you guys have to remember, this was 11 years ago. So I know like weed is legal in I think 18 states now and it's medical everywhere pretty much. At this time, this is, I don't even think like a few states yet. It was barely a few states had medical and nowhere, I don't think it was legal. It was a different perspective on this stuff. But I, I did know that when I went online and looked this up because I was paranoid about everything that I took, that this was a medicine. I said, all right, well, maybe, maybe it's helping me. Maybe it's a good thing. Now, I don't remember any website that told me to smoke joints and blunts all day, every day, but nonetheless, you know, it, it was a medicine, right? And then, of course, as this story always goes, no matter what drug someone starts with, it's not working as well anymore. And the next drug I took was not alcohol. And I know sometimes we don't even think about that as a drug, but it is, obviously, by definition. I didn't even do that next. And the reason I didn't do that next is because there was still this side of Evan Transu that didn't want to do drugs. I had no interest in this. I didn't really like the feeling of being out of control, but I wanted to feel something different than what the depression was providing me with. And what the depression provided me with was anger and numbness and hopelessness all mixed in together. Those are pretty crappy feelings. So next for me was not alcohol. Next for me was Xanax. I remembered the doctor recommending this to myself and my family. I didn't know much about this at the time. This was, again, a time where it was not used as recreationally in colleges. That wave kind of came uh, several years later. I'm sure someone was using it. I'm just saying like now it's like a really common thing, unfortunately. But I remembered them saying this and I looked this up. I was still, again, I'm kind of a, <laughs> I, I still kind of had that like smart guy perspective. I was just doing very dumb things, but I was trying to do this as safely as possible. So I looked this up and I realized, wow, that, that might work pretty well. And I got this from my friend's brother. He had a prescription and he sold me the smallest amount that a doctor would prescribe. And I don't mean like just that amount, but he sold me the 0.25 milligram tablets, which is the smallest amount at the time of recording this that you can get in a prescription. And I started with that. So again, I know it sounds so obvious looking back, but at the time I'm thinking like a depressed, messed up 15 year old, 16 year old at the, maybe 16 at this point, where I'm trying to do the right thing, but I'm also being pretty stupid and playing doctor. So I started with that 0.25. I hate to even sound like this, because especially if someone out there that's listening has maybe like abused drugs or seen someone abuse drugs, this is the last thing you want to hear them say. I, I still remember that exact moment that I took that or rather when it hit, when it fully kicked in, Um, I'm transitioning right now. I'm about to move out into a different place from the pandemic, but I'm at my parents at the moment. And I remember being in that room over there and I walked into the bathroom and I looked myself in the eyes in the mirror and I just started giggling. I was so happy. I was so happy. And this is off member, just a prescription dose. This is actually technically what the doctor would have given me anyway. I'm not high on weed at the time. I wanted to see what this, this did uh, by itself. And I am giggling with happiness. I always had this really strong shoulder pain. Always, always took Advil for it. Never thought about it being like a stress or anxiety thing. Of course, now we know that's a symptom. <sighs> that just went away. I'm calm. My heart rate's normal. I get into the shower and I'm just enjoying the shower. I turn on like some music on my phone or whatever. And I'm just happy, man. I felt so good. Well, that's great. 
and maybe the right step there would have been to go talk to a doctor, but I wasn't ready to do that. And so, of course, it starts with 0.25, and within two weeks, I'm experimenting with 2.0, like two milligrams. And if you're not familiar uh, with that at all, if you... I'm not saying people don't take way more, but if you give someone that does not take this stuff two milligrams, you're, you can give them a million dollars to hide it. They're not hiding. They're going to appear very inebriated. They might pass out. They might just fall asleep. Um, if they're really, really someone that doesn't tolerate things well, that alone will just black them out. Like they won't remember uh, hours at a time. It's, it's pretty serious. And now I'm not taking this every day. But I keep experimenting, right? And I take little breaks because I also knew that I can develop this severe addiction to this. And again, all of this is so crazy looking back because clearly I had severe substance abuse problems and I met the diagnosis for that. But my paranoid mind didn't want to get truly addicted to anything. And so technically, I don't think I ever met the diagnosis criteria for a true addiction. Go figure. Now that this is in the mix, it's a whole different ballgame. I'm smoking heavily. I'm abusing a very illegal drug. I can't afford any of this anymore. And so I start to sell weed myself. This was not something that I thought was cool. This was not something that I wanted to go do. I was That was probably the most paranoia-causing thing that I did after this whole time. Because no matter what you do, you just have it on you. I, I always had something in my car for the most part. It was so easy to get caught. There's texts and stuff like... It's really hard to get out of that one um, if someone catches on to what you're doing. So that probably scared me worse than anything and caused more stress than anything. But I cannot afford these things anymore. I do work a part-time job. It's either sell this or steal or quit. Wasn't about to do the stealing or the quitting. (laughs) And so I chose selling. And that gave me too much freedom. Because I actually made good money doing this. Like not anything crazy, don't get me wrong, not cartel stuff, right? (laughs) Uh, But enough that my friends and I could smoke whatever we wanted all weekend, and I could do whatever I wanted with weed at any time. There was never a problem with that. At some point, I believe it was junior year prom, alcohol got added into the mix. I think that's exactly when it was. So I've been doing drugs for like a couple years now, and I've never even tried alcohol. But I read that you weren't supposed to mix alcohol with Xanax. Now, it's not like I just wanted to do that to be reckless, but I said, why? And I'm like, oh, it potentiates it. It strengthens it. And that was my test. I basically would drink a small amount of alcohol and mix it with the Xanax, which, guys, you can't do that. And it works, though. I mean, it strengthens it, but you give up control. You're giving up your choices now and your decisions, you're giving up your life to something else. Because when you mix those things together and then you're smoking weed on top of it, you're losing track of what's going on pretty quickly. This continued for a while. And basically what would happen is the weed smoking was heavy, lasted all day, every day. The Xanax and alcohol would come in mostly on the weekends. Between the summer of junior year of high school and senior year, things were not going well. I had smoked so much that we did almost nothing for me at that point. Like I couldn't get high. I got what I describe as like zoned out. I would just feel zoned out. I would feel weird. I didn't feel good. And I had, because I'm sure none of you have ever smoked weed, right? If you, I had that introspection that you kind of get when you use it. And it was the very negative type of introspection. It wasn't like, oh, cool. This is how I can go better my life. It was, dude, you suck. You're terrible. Like, what are you doing? Like, it it wasn't good. And it got so bad that I knew knew in the back of my head something was going to snap. I don't know how to describe that, but I knew something was bound to snap. I just didn't know what. Well, senior year approaches, and this is something I actually don't talk about many times in this story when I share it. But I was trying to get better. There was a goal of that for a little bit in the beginning of that school year because the weed's not working anymore. So I realized, all right, I want to, you know, maybe get my life together a little bit here. I'm going to start doing better in school. And I, I was really focusing those first couple of weeks into the senior year. 
And then what happened is since I was going to be 18 in that first month of the school year, my birthday, is September 30th, I knew that I would get in a lot more trouble doing the things that I was doing at 18 versus 17. Now, in my head, I'm thinking, well, half the stuff I'm doing isn't even working anymore. And so what does this even matter? Like, I might as well just get rid of it. And so I legitimately did quit. I'm, I'm trying to do well. I'm trying to focus in school and I quit all this stuff for like a day and a half. Where I messed up is I still wasn't getting help and asking people in my life for support with these things. And so when I get sober for the day and a half, that is the first time I'm sober really for maybe the first time in two years, a little less. And I think I had one or two days where I didn't do anything, not by choice though, uh, during those that year and a half or two year period. And then I would take things like z or Benadryl to just pass out and fall asleep. I wasn't trying to get high off those, but I was trying to pass out and fall asleep. Well, something was going to snap. And I did not realize how psychologically reliant I had become on those drugs. Because I get off of everything and I go into school the next day. <laughs> no bren, uh, no bien, no bueno. One of those, no good. I don't feel so good. I'm kind of freaking out. And the anger and aggression is so bad. I'm getting into it with everyone at school. What ended up happening is I got into a fairly serious altercation with someone else at that school who did not want to be in an altercation. And there was consequences to that. I left the altercation and within 10 minutes I was pulled over by the police department that I lived nearby and four cops surrounded the car and I was detained and put into the holding cell at the local police station. Uh, my dad came once they were able to get a hold of him, not that he wasn't answering, but they didn't have the number or anything. There was a whole thing with that. And I wasn't allowed home that night. They said, that's what we didn't realize. He said, well, no, you don't go home for this. And so my dad had to leave. And then I was taken to the juvenile detention facility up the road. So the whole life got flipped upside down pretty quick. I'm in this place. And there was. There were some weird moments with that. Because the first night I was there, you'd think it would be scary. And it was. But what I mean is I'm sleeping on a metal bed that has this like real it's metal frame with like this really thin, like probably like an inch and a half thick uh, plush kind of mattress that you could just pull off if you wanted to. And the same thing with the pillow. It is not comfortable. You got nothing in the room because they're really, really, really big on kids not dying by suicide when they're in this place. So they have nothing for it. You have this desk, you have the little bed, and you have the mat and stuff. And then all night long, every 15 minutes, you're you're always, every one of you, is on a suicide watch type of thing. So they turn the lights on every 15 minutes, routine. Then they turn them off. It like beeps every time to it's annoying as hell. And then they would walk away. And yet that first night, I slept for 12 hours. No drugs, scary situation, and I sleep for 12 hours. And what I concluded looking back is that it was over. I don't have to be worried anymore. I was living this life that I was so scared of. I didn't want to get arrested. I didn't want to disappoint my parents. I didn't want to get like in trouble at school. Well, all three of those things just happened instantly and there was this odd sense of relief because of it. I don't have to hide this anymore. I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not. Well, that's what I thought at least. Because no one initially thought that the reason that this altercation had occurred was for the reasons that it did. My parents knew something was off. They didn't know that I was using drugs in the way that I was. They didn't know what was going on there. No one really connected this to a mental health thing, as far as I know. And I still didn't want to talk about these things because in my head, I am crazy. I've thought that for years, and now I just went out and did something like that. I am crazy. It wasn't, I think, it's I am. There's something absolutely wrong with Evan Transu. I am effed up. 
I don't talk to people about this. I get out of juvie. I was I was well behaved in there. I was about 150 pounds, maybe 148 at like almost six feet tall, soaking wet back then. So the last thing I needed to do is be starting problems. It was a very nice juvie, but still, you don't want to be messing around with people. And I get out and I'm on house arrest now. I cannot stress enough that my parents are some of the best that you could ask for. Very attentive people. If someone that is half smart wants to do something, they're going to figure out a way to do it. I continued to do drugs while on house arrest. And how did I do something like that? Well, I had a lot of connections. So I had people drop off stuff at three in the morning to the end of my parents' driveway when they were asleep. I continue to use these things. Do I think that's a good idea? No. It's the only coping mechanism I have ever taught myself for the things that I'm dealing with. Somehow, I get away with this off on house arrest. We had a, uh, there was a scare one time with a drug test, but it was close enough to me getting arrested that it was something I could play off. So I, I couldn't do things every day anymore. But I'm messing with it a little bit, still on probation, going back and forth. And then finally, something happened. This, to be clear, all happened, I think it was September 13th of 2013, I believe it was. I think that's when it was. Maybe the 17th. And now it's New Year's Eve. So things are overall not going well. But everyone in my life thinks it's going better. Right? Seems better than before to my friends. My parents definitely it seems better. Probation officer doing all right. Okay. And I, I convinced these people I should be allowed out on New Year's Eve. Now, the probation officer and my parents were not that stupid. There was a few things here that led to this. I was a legal adult, so I can technically, in some sense, do kind of what I wanted. But I had like this 12 o'clock curfew on probation. It was a whole thing. And everyone did think I was doing well. So they didn't want to punish that. So basically, the rules were, you can go out on New Year's Eve if mom and dad are willing to pick you up. My mom and dad are great people. They were willing to pick me up because they thought I was doing well. And of course, I'm only supposed to be hanging out with my friends and my girlfriend. That was the idea. Well, I get dropped off. Can't resist. 10 minutes in, I'm drinking and doing drugs just like I always did. At 12 a.m., we get picked up like we're supposed to. Who's we? We is myself and the girlfriend. Now, I convinced her to do a lot of the same things I did that night. But she wasn't so experienced doing those things. Not in the same way. She definitely did them, but not in the way that I did them. And this girl was probably 105 pounds soaking wet. When we get into the car, I had the very unimpressive skill of being able to hide these things. And if my breath smelled like alcohol, I would have said, oh, well, I just had a shot at 12 o'clock, right? Like I just did it when the New Year's thing, I didn't do anything else. She couldn't hide it. And maybe you remember being drunk for the first time or seeing someone drunk for the first time. Not that it was her first time, but I mean, hell, it might as well have been. She had a story to share with my parents, and it was a story that involved her repeating a full sentence to them almost word for word 30 seconds into the car ride. I'm looking across the seat at her like, yo, shut up. (laughs) I'll take it from here. But she's got a story. She's got that confidence that only alcohol can bring, and there is no stopping her now. Well, it was fairly apparent to my parents that something was wrong here, and they were not happy, to say the least. But I looked okay. I sounded okay. They thought it was her. And I had been with her for a while, so it was one of those relationships where, in a sense, you you don't yell at the girlfriend, but you can kind of say some stuff to the girlfriend. And so they yelled at the girlfriend. (laughs) They were yelling at her. And what happened in that car ride is as these people that I loved were having this thing go back and forth, I'm starting to realize just how badly I'm affecting the people in my life. Now, my girlfriend at the time, she wasn't a big fighter. She's not going to yell back or anything. So eventually, it just kind of becomes silent. And there's that awkward car silence, 10 to 15 minutes that only an angry parent can bring. And I'm thinking, we get home, my girlfriend and I, we go upstairs to my room and I got a couple choices that night. The first choice would have been the right choice, 
It was the choice that I was thinking in the car. And what I was thinking in the car was, hey, uh, I'm so sorry for getting you involved in the things that I got you involved with tonight. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. Hey, thank you for having my back through some of the worst times of my life because I'm looking around and I'm starting to realize uh, most other people, they're gone, aren't they? Oh, hey, by the way, I kind of love you because I know we've been you know, dating on and off for the last four or five years and I've never told you that, but I kind of knew that from pretty early on. So yeah, my bad, I, I love you. I wanted to say those things, but I did not want to say those things more than I wanted to hide from these issues. More than I wanted to hide from this image of being crazy or in my head, the reality of being crazy. I wasn't ready to share that yet. So that was the first choice. I chose the second choice. And the second choice was one I don't recommend. Instead of taking personal responsibility for what I did that night and what I got us involved in, I started blaming my girlfriend. I was very good at blaming other people for my problems at that time of my life. I was an expert in it, practically. And so I start yelling at her, freaking out at her. And at first, it wasn't that bad. But what happened is, it was almost like the drunkenness and the guilt and the shame and all these things I was feeling in that car ride started coming out. And it's projecting his anger. Because anger was one of my main ways of communicating back then. Because it's a lot easier to show that we're angry than that we're ashamed or guilty or upset, isn't it? And it's certainly easier to blame someone else and take responsibility for our faults. So now I'm really yelling. I'm really saying some things. I'm saying things that you don't say to people in general, let alone someone you claim to love. And I hurt that person, man. Emotionally. I had done a lot of stupid things over those four years. That one probably took the cake. And one of the last memories I have of this person is her just being so upset and crying for like an hour before we went to bed. And we went to bed. I wake up in the morning. Um, you know, she's gone. And I'm sober, so I'm starting to think clearly. And what I started to realize is I'm really, really affecting the people in my life. This isn't okay. This isn't something that I can keep doing. I'm doing hard drugs on probation. I'm going to die or I'm going to go to jail. And I asked myself, Ev, which option are you trying to choose? I didn't really like either of those. And then I started thinking all these other things. I'm like, dude, you don't have a high school diploma, no college lined up, no job. Everyone doesn't trust you anymore. And now you have pushed away. You've permanently damaged this relationship with this person that you think that you're going to marry one day with someone that you think you're going to love. How much more do we have to lose or ruin before we wake up to the idea that the Evan Transu plan isn't really working so well, is it? That's what I call my aha moment. Like, aha, I get it now. I need to go do something different. And the reason I share this story, whether it's on a podcast or when I speak in a school, because that's another job that I have. The sole reason I speak is because I understand how lucky I was to get an aha moment. I didn't realize it that night, but I realized it eventually. Because as you might know all too well as an adult who's probably lost people in your life or family members, we don't get a lot of aha moments in life, man. They are not evenly handed out to every single person at the perfect time, and now you get some cool story that you get to share with everyone else. For every one person like me, there's about a 100, like one of my other best friends who I knew since about five years old, he passed away at 22 from a drug overdose. Where's his aha moment? Because that guy was 22 years old. So, guess he doesn't get one. Before we talk about anything functional, uh, what I'm going to ask is this. If you clicked on this today, 
and you're listening to something about mental health, I'm assuming that's not by accident. Either this has affected you directly or indirectly, directly being yourself, indirectly being someone that you know, love, or care about. And what I'm going to ask is if you've been looking for an aha moment of sorts for anything that might be relevant to you, whether it's asking help for yourself, taking that next step with functional medicine, having a conversation with someone you haven't talked to in a really long time, but you know you should. Do me a favor. As someone who actually cares and as someone who's been through this, let's make this conversation the aha moment. Don't wait for the other stuff to happen. If I had gotten this under control with the million warnings, any one of these million warnings I took the opportunity to get control of this stuff with, my life would have been completely different. And if my, well, I won't say his name, but one of my best friends had gotten this under control when he saw the warning signs, I'm pretty sure one of my best friends would still be here with us today doing some cool things for this world. So I'm asking you as someone who cares and as someone who's actually been through this in his own way, let's please make this the last day we're waiting to do what we know we need to do. I think what I'm going to do is this actually. I'm at 49 minutes. (laughs) I didn't really mean to go that long. My... Poor friend and colleague, Tracy, who I love so dearly, and this podcast could not happen in the way that it does without her. She transcribes everything for us, and she helps get the social media content out and do all that kind of stuff. What I'm going to do is this is going to be part one. It's going to be the story, and then I'll do a part two for you guys where we talk about the functional side of things, what I learned, and it will have a more upbeat, (laughs) ideally, type of thing. Now, I don't normally plug any of my own stuff on here. You guys know that for a fact. If you're a regular listener, I I never, ever, ever say stuff like that. Uh, However, I'm not in competition with FDN at all for what I do. So if you are ever interested in this, um, evantransu.com is where I have a website. It's not anything super fancy, but it's how you can get in contact with me for speaking engagements. I do speak to kids. Uh, It's a little bit of a different version of what you heard today. And certainly there's more uplifting stuff at the end. But basically, my goal is to bring this story to kids to help them speak up about mental health issues or get proper help if they have spoken up about it, but have never sought treatment, or maybe they stopped treatment too early to actually get better. Uh, My whole goal is to prevent suicides and drug overdoses for people that are dealing with these things. I can't cure everything, but I'm pretty sure we can stop those two things. So I promise, I promise, I promise there's some good to this story. It does get better. And I cannot wait to bring you guys the part two. So that will be released if you're watching this or listening to this as soon as it came out on Thursday of this week. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you guys have a great day.